We share Bible readings together. We're looking at letters from Jesus to each one of us. They fall in that last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when John, the beloved disciple, was banished to the island of Patmos in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea to live out his days. The Roman emperor thought he had silenced a voice, but in reality, God used this exile, this banishment to reveal to John one of the most amazing messages ever, a fitting conclusion to God's eternal perfect word. The last book that we find in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, that tells us what has happened, what is happening now, and what will happen in the future. The seven letters to those seven churches were real letters. They weren't just contrived. They weren't just make-believe. The geographical references to these cities, such as Ephesus and Laodicea and Pergamum and Sardis, all these were real-life places. Many of them, the ruins are still there. You could make a journey and visit and walk through the, the remains of those almost forgotten cities. So they, they were written to real live com, uh, congregations, addressed to certain cities, but yet they have a timeless message as well. They're not just messages delivered to people who lived centuries ago as though once they were gone, as though once the earthquake or the natural disaster or the military conquest put an end to that spot on the map as we would know it back in those days. The messages, the words of Jesus do not die with those churches. They are ever alive. And so that's why when Jesus speaks to us, we need to be very, very careful to give him our full attention. Our readings are taking us to the letter to the church at Sardis today. It is found in Revelation chapter 3, the actual letter, verses 1 through 6. And we're going to cover the first five of those verses in our time that we have this morning. Notice that John begins each one of these letters like he does all of them. He identifies who is speaking. It says in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Once again, John wants to make very, very clear that it's not his words that we're giving attention to, but they are the words of Jesus. Back in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus is there. We see a picture of him. It's not a, a photo picture. It's not a description that you would want to translate into a figure of one kind or another, but it's a symbolic representation of Jesus. It begins there in the middle of chapter 1 where John says, I heard a voice and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then he begins to describe Jesus. He was one like a son of man, taken directly from the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. 
He began to describe the, the flaming eyes, an Old Testament reference found in Ezekiel and Isaiah to the very character of God. Feet of burnished bronze, a sword coming out of his mouth, the sword of the Spirit. So this is not a, a literal description of the person of Jesus, but it is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. He and the Father are one. And so when, G, when John begins these letters, for all seven of them, you can read it for yourself, he always begins by saying, the one who is speaking is so-and-so. And in this case, he says, to the angel of the church at Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. You go back to that picture of Jesus in chapter 1 and you will find that it was Jesus who held the seven stars in his hand. He was walking among seven golden lampstands. We're told that those seven golden lampstands were those seven churches, those seven congregations, those seven cities that Jesus was walking in the midst of the churches that he was addressing. Those seven stars that he held in his right hand were the messengers or the angels to those seven churches. A very, very hard symbol to unravel. We'll never really understand what it was referring to. Some would say special messengers or some would say the leadership of those churches. But here, there's another symbolic representation. He talks about the one who has the seven spirits. This was mentioned back in the first chapter as well. It's also mentioned and alluded to in a couple of Old Testament passages. And perhaps what it's saying is that it's not talking about the Holy Spirit being in, a, in the form of seven, but it's talking about the fullness of those gifts of the Spirit. Seven, you know, was the, the number of completeness, the, the perfect number, the complete perfect number throughout the Scripture. So Jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, holding the seven stars and also having the seven spirits, the complete presence of the Spirit of God. Bottom line is, John once again says, it's not me that's saying these words. These are the very words of Christ, the very words of Jesus our Lord. Then Jesus begins to speak. And we just read... His words. He has a pattern in all of these letters. It begins with identifying who the speaker is. We've done that. It's Jesus. And then Jesus is going to say that he knows this congregation. And in most cases, when he talks about knowing the church, he gives them a commendation. He encourages them. He talked to the church at Ephesus back there in chapter 2. And he said, I know your deeds. I know your toil. And I know your perseverance. And how he was encouraging them that they stood for what was right. And that they made a stand of their faith. And they didn't tolerate evil in their midst. He congratulated the churches. But you notice here in Sardis, he doesn't. He didn't say anything good about them here. He says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Interesting. Alive in name only. What's he mean? Well, if you go back and you begin to research the historical background of the 
city of Sardis, you begin to get an idea of what Jesus is saying here because the city and the church reflected one another. They were related to one another. History tells us that the great city of Sardis had its origins way back in the centuries before Jesus was ever born, 1500 B.C., somewhere around there. It's a city in the modern land of Turkey today. wasn't on the coast. It was more inland. And it wasn't a large city, but it was a very prosperous and a very proud, a very powerful city for one main reason. When the first king of Sardis, his name is Croesus, founded the city and found a place to build a fortress, he picked a place that was impregnable in most people's minds. It was a a mighty fortress, basically because it was built on a high plateau, on a mountaintop, if you will, where it flattened out at the top. There were four sides, if you will, to this plateau, and three of them had a sheer drop of 1,500 feet on either side in the back. The only way in was through a very rough mountain pass, and so they could easily guard that portion that they could see. The only place, really, where you could attack the city. Therefore, Sardis was known as a city that could never be conquered. And for centuries, it wasn't. They produced wool. They're the first city in that region of the world to actually mint gold and silver coins. Oh, to be rich like those who lived in Sardis was an ancient saying that historians quote, from time to time. But it wasn't always going to be that way. History tells us that Cyrus the Great, the the Persian emperor in 549 B.C., was threatening Sardis. And so the king of Sardis decided that he was going to bring the battle from the mountain fortress and he was going to pull a surprise attack. And so he led his army out of the city of Sardis and they went down into the valley and there they faced off with Cyrus and the Persian army. They were humiliated in a sense, but no worries for King Croesus just took his legions and went back up into the mountain fortress because Sardis was not able to be conquered. It was well defended and he figured he would just wait out the winter. Cyrus posted guards to keep a close watch. And one of those guards, his name is even mentioned in ancient history by the historian Herodotus. He saw a soldier guarding from the top precipice. And the soldier fumbled with his helmet and it dropped and began to fall down the side and got caught in a crevice. And the Persian soldier watched the soldier from Sardis as he made his way down a narrow path that you really couldn't see. But he retrieved his helmet and went back up to safety. And the soldier memorized that journey and told his commander. And so they sent ten soldiers after nightfall, several days later. And they crept up that precipice that was a 1,500-foot sheer drop, but had certain cracks in the formation of that rock to allow a foothold. And they crept in by night. And within two weeks, the city of Sardis had been penetrated and fell. 
was defeated. It regained some of its glory, but then in about 214 B.C., Antiochus III, who was one of Alexander the Great's generals, was fighting along with the other generals after Alexander's death death for power and for dominion. And he read his history books. And so when he came to Sardis, he didn't even pretend to try to waste any of his effort or waste any of his men's lives trying to attack from the front that was well defended. He sent a soldier to find that same path. And two times, the city that could not be conquered was conquered. Some have said that Sardis is the perfect example of a city that had past splendor in the midst of present decay. And apparently the church in Sardis was a mirror image of the history of its city. You see, Jesus said, you have a name that you were alive, but you're dead. Apparently, the, the people in the congregation, the church that was at Sardis during New Testament times, were living on past glories? That's probably a good question to ask. They, at one time, had been prosperous, at one time, had been number one, at one time, had suffered no defeats, at one time, were the city that everyone envied. It was a trade center. It was built upon a plateau so that when you were approaching it, not to fight against them, if you were just approaching to visit, if you were just someone passing through, you were in awe of the city set up on the hilltop, the magnificent temples that were there to pagan gods. And if you were admitted entrance, you knew full well it was because they allowed you to come in to their city. But as the centuries went on, and one defeat after the next happened, and those two major ones we just mentioned out of the pages of history, Sardis became a city of no account, a city that was really ignored. And likewise, there was a church there, a group of believers that were living on past splendor, past glories, while all along they were decaying from within. You know, some people will will chart uh, magnificent movements or organizations, churches. One historian I looked at said that there's always a pattern. It will begin with a man, a very strong figure. And then because of that man's message and charisma, there will be a movement. And then because of that movement, it will turn into a machine. It will almost just run itself. And then the final stage is that it all becomes a monument. It just becomes something that is permanently on display, but yet has no life at all. Is that the church at Sardis? Was it something that began with a man and turned into a movement and then a machine and then now it was at the the monument stage? All we know is Jesus said, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Think about it, friends. What does sin do to our lives? The power of sin when it takes hold of us. Sin has a way of causing death. 
Sin brings on death of our will. There's not a one of us in this room that hasn't experienced the power of sin in our lives. Or at least I'll be one in here to admit that I've seen it from this perspective that in the times of my life where I have chosen to do wrong, the first time or the second time, maybe the third time, I do it with great trepidation, I do it with great fear. But then after a while, it's as though my own will has been defeated and those actions or those attitudes, that sin in my life, I hate it and I love it at the same time because that's what sin does. Sin brings about the depth of feelings. Our feelings die along with the sins that we commit. What once was a hard thing to do, what once was something that we felt tremendous guilt once we had performed that action or thought, that thought, had that thought come to our minds or that action springing from a thought. What happened? We felt so bad about it. We felt so guilty about it. But then over time, what happens? What used to be very hard, what used to make us feel guilty is now just a part of our temperament. It's easy. Sin causes the death of loveliness. Those things that are lovely in our lives. Sin has a way of bringing death into the equation. How so? You strive for excellence, that's a good thing, but what does that turn into if you're not careful? It turns into an unquenchable thirst for power. You desire what? You desire to serve others, and in the midst of that service, you find ambition beginning to fill your heart and beginning to fill your mind to where serving becomes secondary to what you can achieve for yourself. You long to love, and if you're not careful, what does that desire turn into it turns into nothing more than lust because you see that's the way sin works in our lives it brings death to all those things that are good and it brings about a sentence from Jesus that says you have a name that you're alive but you're dead you see the church at Sardis probably was ignored no one paid attention to it anymore no one fought against it. There was, there was no action. There was no feeling within that congregation. Jesus was speaking to religious leaders one day, and you can look it up in the sixth chapter of Luke, verse 26. I never will forget the astonishment came across my own mind and face when I read these words. Jesus said, woe unto you when people speak well of you. What? That's what we're about, aren't we? Aren't we about an upstanding congregation? Aren't we supposed to be those that would be the envy of the world? Jesus said, woe unto you when people speak well of you. Because what? Because if your church is not causing uneasiness in its community, if your church is not rubbing people the wrong way, and I'm saying condemning people or turning people away, but if the church is not standing upon God's principles and upon God's word, and if people are just talking about how beautiful your facility is or how nice you are, Jesus said, beware of when people speak well of you. Maybe that's one of the steps to having a name that you're alive, when in reality Jesus would say, you are dead. Maybe it has everything to do with self-deception. 
the people in Sardis, just like their ancestors, just like their history, they felt that they could never be conquered. And so what did they do? They let their guard down. There was no reason to watch the three sides that had a 1,500-foot drop. The only reason we need to give any attention at all is to the front where people will have to come there to attack us. And what happened? Not defeat once, but a second defeat centuries later, as though the lessons of history could never be truly learned. A city that deceived itself into thinking it was powerful and people within a church that deceived themselves into thinking that they're spiritually mature when they're nowhere near maturity at all. Maybe it has everything to do with all the activity that goes on within the life of a church. And don't get me wrong, to accomplish ministry, you've got to be busy, I'm sure. But what happens when busyness simply becomes plain church? What happens when it's not bringing any life change from within? What happens when the power of sin is still stronger and still the basic motivator in our lives, even though we're in church Every time the doors are open. You see, people that have a name, that they're alive, but they're really dead. And we know that one of the greatest symptoms of such a condition is an unwillingness to recognize you have a problem at all. You know, I I am no counselor. I have no training in formal counseling whatsoever, but I do know this much. I know it from my own experience, and I know from dealing with people over the last 30-something years that the counselors are right. There is no healing. There is no road back. There is no progress made if you do not, if I do not admit that there is a problem. But here you got a church, Sardis. Boy, don't you know how we used to be? Can't you read the history books about our first king? We were the first to mint coins of silver and gold. We produced the finest wool. We could never be conquered, even though we were. So there's a city that is a legend in its own mind. And there is a church filled with people who have a name that they're alive. But Jesus says, you were dead. What does he tell them to do? He says, you better take action or else. Look at verse 2. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, I counted five actions, five verbs that are commands in those verses. 
They're not suggestions. It's not God saying, please do this. It's not saying, consider this, and if you want to, then follow through. When you talk about an imperative in any grammar of any language, the imperative mood is when you were commanded to do something. And these are all in that tense, that verbal form. These are commands. Command to wake up. A command to strengthen. A command to remember. A command to keep what we remembered. And a command to repent. To turn away. From those things that cause death. To turn away from that path that is wrong. These are not suggestions. They are commands. Or else what? Jesus said, or else I will come like a thief. Do you remember 549 B.C.? People of Sardis. Do you remember from history? 214 B.C.? Do you remember Cyrus the Great and Antiochus the Third? And all they had to do was keep watch and they found where you could be defeated. They found where you could be attacked and they crept upon you, upon you like what? Like a thief. They stole your city. They ruined your influence. They came like a thief in the night. And Jesus says, unless you follow my commands, I've made them very clear. I will come to you like a thief. And what? I will come to you like a thief and remove your lampstand out of its place. My goodness, they're, they're this close to having that happen anyway, except what? Except it seems as though there is some hope, even at the monument stage of this church, if you will. Going back to what we just talked about. A man, a movement, a machine. Finally a monument that you just look at and have memories, fond memories of. And it would seem that a church that was saying it had a name, that it was alive, but yet was dead. Jesus said, you're almost there, but there are a few, even at this stage, even at this late in the game. There are a few. And they will walk with me and wear white with me, for they're worthy. He closes with a promise. He said, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white. And I will not erase his name for the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Did you hear those promises? He promised three things. He said, if you will what? If you will overcome, if you will wake up, then you'll be clothed with me in white garments. Symbolism of righteousness. Symbolism of purity. You will not have your name erased from the book of life. Now, that's a troubling one for most of us. What about this book of life? What's he talking about? It's mentioned in the Old Testament, a record of God's people. Every city had its registry of citizens. And God has a book of life. How can one have his or her name erased from the book of life? Well, think about it. Is John, is Jesus talking here about someone having salvation and losing it? No. But if the Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world, can you envision a book that has the names of every single person ever to be born upon the face of the earth? 
their names are there because Jesus died for all. He paid it all for all of us. And when we come to the threshold of eternity, when we come to the point of death, if we have Christ in our lives, our names are secure. Our names are on that list. And if not, if we die without Christ, what happens? Our name is erased from the book of life. There's not a single person on the face of the earth that God willingly would damn, that God willingly would say, I choose you to heaven and I choose you to be banished to hell. Jesus died for the sins of the world. The names of all. He provided salvation. But it's up to you and to me to receive that gift, to take Him by faith. And when we do... It's just evidence that our lives are permanently marked in the book of life. And when we reject Jesus, we've erased our names. There's a little boy named Rex Fleming who lives in Abilene, 10 years old. He's been on our prayer list for two years. They discovered a a brain tumor in Rex when he was eight years old. And as of two weeks ago, he was taken home to live out his remaining days under hospice care. It's a 10-year-old boy. He has friends, family members who are in our church. And that's how we came to have his name put on our prayer list. But his mom posts emails and posts a blog. This was posted last week. They've taken little Rex home, and he's under hospice care. And she said, he had a pretty good day today, but he refused to go to sleep, mainly because we believe he's afraid he won't wake up from his nap. We had the same conversation with him at least a couple of times per day. He asked if he's going to die, what's going to happen, if we're ever going to forget him, if we'll tell his sister and brother about him, and what will happen to us. It's emotionally and mentally draining for all of us, yet we know it's part of the process that Rex is going through. We assure him that ultimately he is the lucky one. We will be upset, but in time we will learn to cope and carry on. We have no other choice. His brother and sister will demand that we carry on with our lives, but we will never forget Rex. Earlier tonight, while he was trying to go to sleep, I was with him, as was our hospice nurse, when he suddenly sat up and he said, I'm ready to go to heaven. I want just one day when there's no doctors or nurses or hospitals. It caught me off guard to hear him say that. But that's when I knew he was ready. Later, after he had fallen asleep, I went back into our bedroom where he's sleeping at nights, lay down beside him, and simply prayed for God to ease his pain ease his worry, and if it was time to take him home. I never thought I would ever pray for one of my children like that. But he's struggling mightily, and this life is not the one he would want to live if given the choice. I also prayed that God would give Jill and I, Ryan and Ashley, our parents and siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins and friends the strength to carry on, to live life as he taught us over these last two years with love, with grace, with dignity, with quiet strength, and with laughter. 
It might be a while before we have true laughter, but I know we will laugh again. In the meantime, we cry, we ache, we long to see our son, to hear him talk, to hear him laugh, to see him run and play. But we know he'll be doing all these things fully healed in heaven. What's the point? The point is, my friends, is you don't give up. You don't check it in. You live. And none of us have the promise of excellent health for the rest of our lives. We know that. None of us have a promise that we will avoid tragedies. None of us are given the assurance that nothing bad will happen to us. But we are given the ability to have a name that is alive. To live lives not based upon past splendor, but now present decay. But to live lives glorifying God. And taking what comes our way. Taking what happens along the way. Not as an excuse to deceive ourselves but as a reason to give glory to God and to follow Him wherever it leads. So wake up. Strengthen. Remember. And keep those things that you remembered. And turn back to me, says Jesus. It's worth it all. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and now to have the opportunity to obey your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We offer an invitation this morning, an opportunity for people to make decisions. It could be that you're here today and you have never said yes to Jesus Christ. Your name is in that book of life. But you've never claimed your place there. You've never said yes to Jesus. The Bible says we must receive him into our lives. We must make that exchange of faith. We must cross that line of faith. And so I give you that opportunity to do that today. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, just never told anyone. Maybe that's what you need to do to profess your faith in him. Maybe God would lead you to join this church today. Maybe this is where he's leading you to plug in, to belong, to serve. Maybe God is speaking to you about the kind of life you've been living. The lack of emotion in your life, perhaps. Or just living in the past. Or not really living, glorifying Him at all. Maybe you've already found some flimsy reason to check out and to just coast along. To that, Jesus says, I don't give you suggestions, I give you commands. You're my child, wake up. Maybe you simply are at a place in life where you need someone to pray for you. We'll have people here that all they're going to do is be willing to just pray over you, to speak a prayer, asking God's direction to be given to you in your life. So there's really no reason at all to leave this room without dealing with the important spiritual business, especially if this room is filled with people who have a name that they're alive and in reality are almost dead. Make up your mind and do what's right. That's our invitation. We stand together. We sing. Won't you step out? Won't you come forward right now?